So, um, yeah. Soon. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Nicholas Delbanco joins me in the studio. We're taping December 8th, 2014. Nick, thank you so much for coming and talking with me today. And it's lovely to see you, as always. I'm delighted to be here and to be back. Thank you for picking the music for today's program. Um, Why did you pick that first one? Well, that's the opening of the first Bach cello suite, suite for solo, violin, cello. And I think anyone who knows and loves classical music will know and love it. But it matters to me particularly because my father-in-law, relatively recently deceased, the great cellist Bernard Greenhouse, was a student of the Pablo Casals who just heard playing that uh, Sweet, and studied with Casals for years, and I wrote about it actually in a couple of books. So it seemed like an appropriate way to say hail and farewell. Yes, and which which books, Nick? Which which ones? Because we've got several books on the table, but we don't right. have all of them because then we wouldn't be able to see each other. I think beyond the mics. Yes, um, disconcertingly, my twenty ninth book is about to come out. One was uh, the first book, which was published, I believe, in nineteen eighty five was a kind of collective biography of the Beaux-Arts Trio, which my father-in-law uh, was a founding member of. And in the section on him, I go into his lessons with Casals at some more than brief length. And the more recent book, which came out, I think, in 2001, um, was an analysis uh, entirely of his cello. It has the jaw-cracking title of the Countess of Stanline Restored, a history of the Paganana ex Paganini, sorry, the Countess of Stanline, ex Paganini, Stradivarius violoncello of 1707. So he had a Stradivarius. He did. Uh, he uh, loved it, played it daily, um, died with it by his side in the bed, and was a great student, teacher, and practitioner of the form. Did, does um, Elena, your wife, did she play as well, or does she play? Uh, 
My wife, according to her father, and he rarely complimented others, um, had an even greater musical gift than did he, and is um, extraordinary in terms of her musical alertness, but in part for that reason, and in part, I think, because he expected so much of her as a cellist early on, relinquished it. You know, if somebody reserves town hall for you when you're four, you kind of give it up. Does she? Would she play the Stradivarius now? Uh, she wouldn't play the Stradivarius now because we sold it um, after his death. Um, you know, if you own a great painting and you're fortunate enough to have it hanging on your wall, um, it makes a kind of sense to uh, uh, to keep it if you can. But uh, Stradivarius cello really does need to be performed on and in public, or at least that's what my father-in-law wanted. And so after he died, we made arrangements for another professional practitioner. You found it a, a good, we a did. new home. There's actually yeah. going to be a TV show about that uh, in January, God help us, from Fox Business News called Strange Inheritances, in which Elena is featured as the, the person who tried to figure out what to do with her dad's cello. More importantly, um, and though the novel is, is very um, much a fiction, she has a first book coming out in May called The Silver Swan, which you can uh, read as a translation of The Countess of Stanline. It's about what a daughter whose father is a great cellist um, makes of her own career, though she too is a professional uh, performer. And it's quite a wonderful novel, and I think you should have her on the show then. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to it. Great. We'll look forward to it, Nick. So on the table, we also have so the, the latest book uh, of yours, Out Into the World, uh, Dear Wizard, The Letters of Nicholas Delbanco and John Manchip White, um, edited edited by, by, by you, Nick. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and from this book, we've also got your forthcoming latest novel, The Years, on the table with us. And when is this out as well? Um, it's, it seemed excessive to publish two books in a month, didn't it? So uh, I wouldn't uh, put it past <laughs> Dear Wizard is, is coming, has just appeared from the University of Michigan Press. And this, from a commercial publisher, will appear in the beginning of 2015. Well, that does seem, that seems like a nice rhythm to it, doesn't <laughs> right. it? And, well, and this book is some, it's a tome. It, it's a, a force to be reckoned with in the world. This is, um, these are all letters. It's wonderful um, how, like, just, we started to take a brief tour before we went on the air. And, um, and, and. Nick, I'll tell you what, I'll read the short bio in the back, and then maybe if you don't mind describing it to everyone, Absolutely. that would be that would Absolutely. be brilliant. Nicholas Delbanco is the Robert Frost Distinguished University Professor of English Language and Literature at the University of Michigan. He has published 29 books of fiction and nonfiction. He directs the Hopwood Awards program at the University of Michigan. He has served as chair of the fiction panel for the National Book Awards, has served on the jury of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and has received such awards as the J.S. Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship and twice a National Endowment for the Arts Writing Fellowship. 
And Nick, it's funny, but I had to put in the 29 here because it says 28 here on the book cover. <laughs> <laughs> so already. Well, I, well, that's the 29th. So, no, no, no. This is, this, the sorry. years might be. I too be, am losing yeah. count. The years will be the 29th. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, can you tell us a little bit about this? Because it's, sure. it's, it's, it, it's, I mean, I love the radio and being here, but it's a bit of a shame that we don't have a visual cue or um, a chance to see it because it is, as you say, quite a tome. Uh, indeed, people who need to prop up houses or at least stop doors couldn't do better than to buy a copy of Dear Wizard. It weighs upward of five pounds. It's full of full-size facsimile uh, letters. And it is the not actually the collected correspondence but the selected correspondence selected of, of, of man I yes it's only about half the size of the whole and this weighs in at 750 pages or so how long were you writing letters to each um, other I have many betters no doubt but I don't have many elders and betters left and one of the sorrows that attached to this book is that John Manship White died before it, it saw the light of day, though he was very much a part of the compilation and knew it was coming. Anyway, um, this is a man I loved and revered, and perhaps the simplest uh, way to do it is just to read you a couple of pages or a couple of paragraphs from my editorial introduction. In effect, we'd been writing each other for, well, since the late 1970s, and... Um, back and forth with some regularity so this book is is that and here's what i said by way of beginning the habitual exchange of letters is a custom now nearly extinct there was a time when letter writing served as the necessary discourse for men and women not within earshot or in a shared room that time has gone the telegram and telephone a cell phone or email, text message or Skype, the various new forms of telecommunication, Facebook, Twitter, and the rest, have each in turn displaced and finally replaced the habit of correspondence. Few practice it today. Those who read collections of letters hereafter will read about the fast receding past. My own past recedes, so did that of John Manship White. I've begun my eighth decade. He reached the end of his ninth. This collection spans the period of 1978 to 2013. Our habitual exchange of letters, therefore, lasted not merely for years and decades, but centuries, millennia. We shared rooms and cities, but only seldom spent uninterrupted time in each other's company with no need to write. I could have wished it otherwise, have wished, I mean, to live more near and see with greater regularity a man I both loved and revered. What we have here instead is the record of a friendship attested to by correspondence and enacted largely in the epistolary mode. Thank you, Nick. You're welcome. So so this is you know, hundreds of letters, um, and I can say, without embarrassment or immodesty, 
that at least half of this book is wonderful, <laughs> meaning what John Manship White wrote to me is worth the reading. What I wrote to him uh, is up for grabs. But I loved being a correspondent with him. And at a certain point uh, early on, probably by the mid-1980s, we got into the habit of writing each other on... Um, borrowed or cribbed uh, stationery. Um, and that's one of the reasons this book is a, is a facsimile edition, because the letters come from wacky and wonderful places. I mean, I wrote him from the White House in Washington. He wrote me from a Cuban jail. Uh, I wrote him from... I didn't uh, know they had letterhead. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a post start uh, in Havana. I wrote him from, um, you know the Committee on Un-American Activities, because he was a bloody foreigner, a Welshman. Um, and he wrote me from uh, the Ritz in, in Vladivostok. Um, his great coup, actually, was when he came up here to visit us once. He wrote me from the Campus Inn, and that uh, that tr trumped my, my return mail, which was from... I don't remember, I think the Burma hump. Um, but we did have um, a wonderful time uh, writing each other, and I'm very pleased with the entity that this represents, a kind of labor of epistolary love. Mm. Yeah. Across time. Yeah, it really is. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Nicholas Delbanco is here. You've just heard I, the, from the introduction from Dear Wizard, the letters of Nicholas Delbanco and John Manship White. I'm T. Hetzel. We have Stephanie behind the glass. We'll be right back. Nicholas Delbanco is here and has chosen the, the music. Um, Nick, why why that song? Because as it was fading out, it was a way I'm bound to go. Mm. Can you tell us the... Well, this too is a piece of music that has mattered to me for a very long time because I, like most of the music lovers and theater lovers of my generation, admired the great black actor, activist, and singer Paul Robeson. 
And this is uh, from a record I used to listen to more or less endlessly in my teens. And um, it's about departure. I'm not departing Ann Arbor, but I am about to retire from the University of Michigan. And uh, so it seemed appropriate to have a chorus line about a way I'm bound to go. Um, in uh, some degree, uh, and certainly in, in Robeson's interpretation, it's, it's a mournful song. But I've just come off a sort of week-long celebration of um, my stay here, uh, and uh, I don't feel mournful about that at all. It's been a wonderful time and place. This last week was the symposium. And many people, former students, um, many people returned yeah. to be part of the event. Charles Baxter um, was here uh, to be in conversation with you for the, the final uh, yeah. uh, public event. Yeah. Um, what were some of the moments, um, Nick, that it... I don't know. Were you, were you prepared for all of it, I guess, in a way? You know, in many ways... Uh, I mean, obviously, I knew it was going to happen. I knew I had to be in town uh, and uh, prepared to smile. Uh, but I really wasn't part of the planning. Um, I didn't uh, have anything to do with the actual orchestration of the event. Most of the credit for and the labor of that goes to my colleague, Peter Ho Davies, and our admirable uh, administrative director, Megan Levad. They worked, uh, it, it's now clear to me, like dogs um, to put on this show. Um, and there's an ongoing residue of it in, in the library, uh, in the special collections at the Harlan Hatcher Library on the seventh floor. There's a kind of record of, of I think they call it a literary life. Uh, so you can watch me being a pretentious undergraduate all the way into being a, a grateful old man. Um, oh, so, and but, so what you're what you're referring to, Nick? This is the what's on display at the the library currently. Yes, what, that's right. What is it called? Does it have? Does the? I think it's called uh, uh, Nicholas Delbanco, a literary life. A literary and, life. And it's in the, as I said, the seventh floor special collections thing, and it and it does. Uh, it doesn't focus on, um, but it deals importantly with my time at, at Michigan. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a, a display case of the Hopwood Awards. There's a display case about the book I've just um, uh, read from, uh, Dear Wizard. But it sort of begins at the beginning, which is to say me as a pretentious undergraduate um, and my notebooks from the 1960s where I sort of wrote move over William Shakespeare to myself and, and lots of lovely letters from, alas, mostly dead friends like Raymond Carver and Bernard Malamud and John Gardner and what have you. Anyway. Um, Are your you, archives you, going to be here? Yes, the archive is here. It is. That's all um, okay. And that's what they'd culled from the archive. And um, and it, it, it moved me. You asked what what was my takeaway from the, the conference date in particular? Um, I actually hadn't been prepared for this, as I've suggested. I, many of my beloved students, eight of them in, in, in number, comprised panels. And I realized in a way that I hadn't um, during the, the years that I was their teacher 
that this is an ongoing enterprise, that there's a tradition uh, that has been established and that most of these, I think of them as children, they're now 45 to 50 years old, um, most of these people are directing writing programs of their own. So what we did here, and it was wonderful that Charlie Baxter came back to be part of it because I do think of him as, he would say, as our a partner in crime. Um, what we did here for these years and decades um, was to create a way of, of thinking about the teaching of writing that has disseminated. Some Jessamyn Ward came from the far south, Porter Shreve came from the far west, people came from Pittsburgh and, you know, Baltimore and what have you. And it was. Well, all over the country, it seems to me, and I'd like to think this, our students are profiting and being teachers. Well, and for being, I, w I was only able to, to make it to the conversation with mm. you and Charles Baxter, which was um, this, it seemed like a, a, quite a moment, really, and, and to see people gathered in the Rackham Auditorium. Mm. Um, you, you, you even said it's a good thing we have chairs here. <laughs> You know, um, I, as I said, I, I hadn't been involved in uh, the programming or in the uh, organization of it all. And I think insofar as I was consciously preparing for it, I was sort of saying, well, you know, stiffen up, you'll get through this. But um, at a certain point and during that standing ovation, Charlie reached over to me and said, cherish this. Uh, I did, uh, and I do. Ah, well, that's lovely, Nick. That's, it's really, and so, and even though we're, this symposium, it happened last week, I know they also taped it, so I'm sure there's mm. going to be opportunities for people to, um, to hear it, to be deep, be part of that as well, um, and to visit the seventh floor to see um, the, the, the gallery showing special Yeah, you won't get rid of me so easily. <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, looking, looking ahead, cause I know, cause we will, I'd, I'd love to use this, this time to talk about the books that are on the table, quite right. literally also memories. Um, but what, looking ahead, what is it that you are most excited about right now as you're besides Elena's book coming out? I know. Um, I think I, I, I want to make it clear that I came to the University of Michigan in 1985 with one dear dream when I um, effectively established the writing program here. It had been in existence a year before, but my predecessor left, and, and so it was my turn to pick up this sort of, this infant. If you're a... Uh, a student in of medicine or of business or of law, and you go to graduate school and get a graduate degree, you have some reasonable expectation that you can afford to pay for it uh, and re uh, you know repay your student debts. But the odds on doing that as a uh, as an artist, whether a writer or a painter or a musician or whatever, are really quite long. And so, from the get-go, I wanted to make it possible for students to come here for nothing and not to incur debt. 
and with the munificent gift uh, in the last couple of years of the Helen Zell um, money, that dream is realized. Now, nobody uh, who attends uh, our MFA program will ever have to pay for it. And they can have three years in which to learn and hone their craft. And that being said, and that being achieved, uh, it didn't seem to me that I had much left to do or certainly to prove. And it it would have been a kind of repetition compulsion to stay on. So it seemed like the appropriate time to step down. And what I want to do is spend more time at my own desk so that I can improve on this um, impoverished output of mine and, and produce six books a year rather than just two. Um, I'm joking, of course. What I want is to to try and write something that, that might last. And also, as disgraced politicians say, to spend more time with my family. <laughs> but I don't think I'm disgraced. I'm certainly not a politician. I, I, do, I do mean the lat latter. We have granddaughters now, and it's grand to be with them. So we'll be both on the East and the West Coast in, in addition to time in Ann Arbor. And... Uh, you know, see what comes next. Yes, and so it's interesting to hear you say that you'll be moving moving around. Well, having so there's this place in the East Coast, the West Coast here, right. the, our middle mm. ground of, of Michigan. Um, and it seems natural from um, you being born in London, coming to the U.S. at six, um, becoming a citizen at 11. And so, right, and, right. and having... And sort of traveled uh, and always written about travel, travel essays, mm -hmm. placed your books abroad as as much as they're placed here, I imagine, the fiction. Um, it, it is true I've been peripatetic. It is also true that I'd like to be able to, to travel at leisure rather than sort of in between um, semesters. So this will be a different rhythm to it then, it, won't it? It will. So where will you go first? Well, we have um, bought a little apartment, a pied-à-terre in New York, Lovely. and we're returning to the city of my wife's birth, and we'll be there. The first time I'm going out of the country I, in February is to Mexico. The next time in April is to England and Ireland. The next time in October is to France. So indeed, we will be on the road a bit, but uh, we'll still hang our hats in Ann Arbor. Oh, well, that's that's good to hear, yeah, actually. Um, you've got nice hats, Nick, with you. <laughs> You're a man of hats. You don't say uh, that just as a, <laughs> as a toss off. <laughs> and so for for England, for some of these trips, are you going back? Are, is there family still there, or is it uh, more of pleasure trip or, or research? It's actually the reverse. Um, uh, there is no family there anymore, and um, really many to most of the trips that I'd made to England previously were associated with family members, in particular a beloved uncle. When he died, I... I didn't want to go back. Um, so it's taken a while, and it's now time to revisit and to go to places that Elena and I left to travel to, you know, 10 and 20 years ago. Um, but it will be the first time we've been in England in quite a while. And Ireland, uh, probably not for 15 years. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder if it, is it something where I wonder if you can feel of a place being born there, even when you move so young. Uh, this is more than you want to know, but I I I was graduated from college um, here. And then I went back to London uh, to think that I would work uh, for my uncle and perhaps, he was an art dealer, and, and perhaps uh, stay there for the rest of my functional uh, or professional life. By the time I returned really rather rapidly, I realized that that was, not, that was a romantic and not an actual uh, issue and that I had become wholly and happily an American. So... Um, I no longer delude myself that I belong in in England, but as a tourist, it'll be a pleasure to return. And what's the title of your the travel essay book? Anywhere out of the world: essays on travel, writing, and death. Exactly. So wonderful title. And I'm also uh, I do have a a whole travel writing book called or travel book called Running in Place: Scenes from the South of France. And that's the October trip, which, God help me, I'm taking for and under the aegis of the New York Times, leading a bunch of folk who are willing to walk through Provence. Uh, I suddenly realized um, when uh, I saw the advertisement for it saying, you know, moderate activity, that perhaps I don't want to walk all the bloody way from Arles to Avignon, (laughs) but we'll see. (laughs) We'll take a short break and then we'll, we'll... Be back for more conversation today with Nicholas Delbanco. I'm T. Hetzel. You have Living Writers. We'll be right back. If I had wings, I'd know as dove. I'd fly the river to the one I love. Oh, fare thee well, my honey, fare thee well. I had a man, strong and tall. Like a cannonball Oh, fare thee well My honey Fare thee well I remember one evening In the pouring rain In my heart Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Nicholas Delbanco is here. Um, we've been talking about last week, the amazing celebration of your time and work here at the University of Michigan. Um, Nick, you mentioned that you came here in 1985. Um, you've been writing since you, you know, on graduation from, was it undergrad? Or was yes. it okay, yes. from that you had you had your first novel um, deal? Yeah, <laughs> right. you went to Bennington College, mm-hmm. um, then Skidmore College. So there's been this life of teaching, or, or you were there at Skidmore for a little bit, and, right. and, and, and stayed. And I also taught briefly at at, at a certain point. 
uh, I realized that I and we would have to leave Bennington because we had two daughters and and didn't um, uh, you know didn't want them to go to the local school system, which was catastrophic. I, uh, that's not a, a snobbish assertion, though it may sound like one. The Bennington um, school budget was three point eight million dollars. And um, when it declared itself bankrupt, it turned out that the superintendent happened to have three point eight million dollars in a in the Bahamas. <laughs> right. oh. So so we kind of knew that this wasn't a place we would stay. And I took short term jobs at at Williams College, at Skidmore College, at Trinity College. At, even at that unmentionable place, the Iowa Writers Workshop, while we tried to figure out um, what to do and where to go. Why Michigan, and, Nick? What happened? Well, that's a, a kind of funny story, I think. Um, at a certain point, when I uh, decided not to stay at Skidmore, which is quite a good place, um, I said to Elena, you know, um, we got to stop pretending. I, I'm either going to have to take a job or uh, or stop looking for one. And she said, well, what about the Midwest? Uh, and I said, what about the Midwest? Uh, she had spent some time in Indiana uh, in, the, in the, the great music school there that's sponsored by Indiana University. And um, she said, well, you know, how about Indiana or, or how about Michigan? And I said, well, I've never been to Michigan. I, I know no one at Michigan. I have no reason to go to Michigan. Uh, forget it. That afternoon, uh, the phone rang, and our then-chair, uh, John Knott, um, said, asked me if I'd be interested in coming to Michigan uh, to replace, uh, as I said, my predecessor, the, the great friend and great writer George Garrett, who'd come here, I think, with good and enduring intentions, but who was offered himself uh, probably the only job for which he would have left, which is the Henry Hoynes professorship at the University of Virginia. He was from there. He'd gone there. Um, he couldn't say no. So John asked him, you know, who do you think could replace you? And, and George flatteringly said, I could. And when I hung up on that call, I thought, this is probably more than a coincidence. Uh, and so I flew out to see this and um, was asked to take the job and took it. And the rest, as they say, is the rest. So yes. I, I, I literally had not been to Ann Arbor before they offered me the job or until they offered me the job. When you came here, did you? was there something, was there a feel about it? Nick, where you had this sense of knowing about it. Um, Ann Arbor, even then, and it has, I think, grown and improved, was clearly a, a, a town uh, that, you know, had energy and, and wonderful music and so on and so forth. I, I did say, um, because it was a thoroughly fledgling operation, uh, the MFA program, I did say to the then dean... You know, you're obviously a far more powerful and important institution than is my little Bennington College, which had 500 students. But if one is an artist there, uh, one is primus inter pares. That was a school that basically was was built um, around the notion that art 
mattered and that artists mm. could teach it. And I said to him, frankly, um, I'm damned if I'm going to come to a place where I'm a second-class citizen. Uh, you either have to—I mean, you have to promise me that you'll take the business of writing seriously and back this program. And he said yes, and he delivered on that promise. Uh, this was the relatively recently dead um, Peter Steiner, but. Uh, John Knott, who's still very much around, and Peter Steiner and Harold Shapiro, who was the then president, they all said, okay, uh, this is not a notional offer. We are going to stand behind this program. Um, I remember meeting a bunch of potential supporters in New York. Arthur Miller was the, um, the sort of central speaker. And he said, you know, I believe in this kid. Uh, I'm putting $50,000 behind him in the hopwood. Anybody care to join me? And, of course, when Miller spoke that way, a lot of people did, and we were off and running. Um, so from a, a, an, an infant in swaddling uh, clothes, we are now a fully functional and more or less mature um, program. Well, I remember... Um the the words that you said in Boston at the AWP mm. when um, when Helen Zell was there and, and announcing uh, we her were, gift right? we were recognized yes yeah. and uh, that was really quite something well it was it's a dear dream realized and and I'm as proud as I can be well, who are some of the people because the when we're talking about the writing program Nick I think you brought obviously like the the workshop, uh, like making sure that there's crafts, craftsmen mm -hmm. working together, craftspeople. Um, what, what else? Like about also the Hopwood Room, like this this room where writers could come um, to build community. Um, was that also your doing? This idea of having a central location, uh, um, a place that had publications, and writers would come and talk and have tea. Uh, very definitely not. I'll take whatever credit I can get, but, <laughs> but, but not for the Hopwood program, which antedated me by a long while. Um, Avery Hopwood uh, was a uh, Michigan grad from 1905, thank you very much. And when he died in the early uh, 20s, he had the more or less revolutionary notion that um, he wanted to endow a program that would support creative writing in uh, un, then undergraduates um, or, or just Michigan students. Um, by now, a lot of people are, have climbed aboard that particular bandwagon. By then, uh, at that time, it, it was a genuinely original idea. And frankly, if he hadn't made that a, a stipulation, there'd be a wing of the library called the Avery Hopwood uh, wing or all the carpets in LSN A would be <laughs> the Avery Hopwood Memorial Carpets or whatever. But we have this endowment that has been well, well tended and for a very long time. The first um, uh, you know, award was given out in, in the 1930s. Um, Arthur Miller said, and I think meant, that he came to the University of Michigan in order to win a Hopwood Award. Um, which at that time more or less paid for his tuition. And in his autobiography, Time uh, Bends, he, he talks about winning it wonderfully. I mean, uh, the difference it made to him, the ratification it provided. 
Anyway, um, that was a long-established uh, and important uh, tradition, but it wasn't an educational one in the technical sense. It wasn't um, part of the curriculum. It was just a space which we still unhappily occupy and where we still unhappily pour tea. Um, I came as the director of the MFA and also as the director of the Hopwood. And for the first years, I did it basically with smoke and mirrors, which is to say I was trading on the long-established reputation of the Hopwood in order to pretend that we were an established program. Um, so, you know, great writers like Miller and, and Robert Hayden and Marge Piercy and Frank O'Hara and any number of folk who'd come through Michigan as undergraduates, I would sort of suggest somehow that that they too were behind the MFA. Um, and finally... And um, would some of them return then? Because Hayden yeah, did. Absolutely. Into teaching. Absolutely. Um, and so there's a, you know, there's a natural blood brotherhood between those two programs, but I, I did not start the, the Hopwood. And some of the people that you mentioned then, Nick, who are some of the, the other people that come to mind? Or I guess it must be just the vast numbers of writers that have come through the doors of, of that room. Uh, it is simply the case that that writers have located themselves here either as transients or as brief residents or as permanent residents for a very long while. I am as... As you said, the Robert Frost Distinguished University Professor, um, it's not as widely known as I think it should be that Robert Frost was a teacher here um, way back when in the early 1920s. A short time. Um, a short time. Um, but Maybe you... against his <laughs> his wishes, he seemed to sort of get out of some of the teaching, didn't he? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> uh, he, 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 even young he was an old crank. <laughs> and, and I think that teaching was not his natural um, uh, calling. Um, but as you know, I came here from uh, Bennington, from southeastern, western Vermont, and if my arm were a little better, I could hit three of his old farms uh, from my front porch. Uh, he's buried in that town, uh, and um, he was a, a, a terrific poet and a terrible farmer <laughs> and each time he sort of wrecked a farm farm he moved on you know a mile or two and tried again why am i telling you this? but it doesn't it doesn't seem an accident then that you then there's that other connection like you were meant to come to michigan and to be the the robert yeah. frost well i I, I believe in all uh these fated connections yes but the truth is if you become a distinguished university professor one of the perks is that you can figure out your own name. So I'm. Uh, that's why I'm the Robert Frost. <laughs> I, I do actually own his writing desk or one of his writing desks, and and we did know members of his family way back when. So it felt like it has a, me. It, yeah, a, it, it, it means meaning. something to me. Absolutely. Uh, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back today on the program. Nicholas Delbanco is here. We've got his books, Dear Wizard, The Letters of Nicholas Delbanco, and John Manship White on the table, as well as that forthcoming novel, The Years. Lastingness, The Art of Old Age, The Count of Concord is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
it's quarter to three There's no one in the place except you and me Set him up, Joe I've got a little story that you ought to know We're drinking, my friends To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one for the road Got the routine. Drop another nickel in the machine. Nickel. I'm feeling so bad. I wish you'd make the music dreamy and sad. I could tell you a lot, but you've got to be true to your code. Make it Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Nicholas Delbanco is here. Um, well, Nick, we've been, we're at the last quarter, um, and it's, and we've been talking a lot about, um, we've been sort of roving through right. time and history and trying to capture bits of um, the present and the past here. <laughs> yes. Actually, another reason I am retiring is that though I love to teach and love to teach undergraduates, I'm getting a little weary of them saying, Professor, what was it like to have lunch with Chuck Dickens? Was he as much fun as it looks? Or did Mark Twain really make those jokes over drinks? Uh, I'm joking, of course, but 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 the it could have uh, at least said Dorothy Parker. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> she's she's too recent. Uh, <laughs> no, before they can legitimately call me a relic. I thought I ought to wheel out. Okay. Well, that's true. Yeah, they can yeah. only have parts of you in the special collections, mm. right? <laughs> Archive. So we've got your so this novel, The Years. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, it's a book that uh, I've been working on for a very long time, um, in part because it's a two-part book. The first half of it really came out as a novel called Spring and Fall in I think 2005 um, and uh, it's based on uh, that great uh, text uh, William Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale it has to be based loosely because if you get tightly um, based on Shakespeare and get compared to him, you're, of course, going to lose. Um, so I, I took the idea and uh, a few of the names and some of the thematic matter from... Why, why do you find... Because that's an interesting uh, thing that you do. We talked about uh, it a little bit, like in The Count of Concord. Why do you find energy in that, Nick? Or, or is that um, a fair thing to say? I think perhaps the simplest way to say it is that in the short story, I feel more or less permitted, enabled to uh, write about personal matters, to be um, kind of alert to uh, moments and encounters that transpired in my actual life. But it would be vainglorious and a little boring to do so at several hundred pages worth of length. It's better to tell other stories if you're going to in, in, engage in a novel. And it's also better in a certain way to to have, as I said, a template um, 
where there is a beginning and a middle and an end and some model you can follow. I mean, the variations on the theme are, 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 are almost infinite. But I do have the habit, yes, of sort of looking back on ancient stories, ancient myths perhaps, ancient passages from X, Y, or Z, and using them as springboards for a text. In any case, uh, that was the case with um, Spring and Fall, uh, which we may have actually spoken about some years ago when it appeared. Um, and the idea in The Winter's Tale is that Leontes falls back in love with Hermione uh, when she ceases to be a statue uh, and is transformed into a living flesh, no mean theatrical trick, um, after 40 years of absence. So I wrote a story about uh, people who were lovers in college who meet again after 40 years and fall, this time more deeply and enduringly, in love. And the second part of the book, uh, it's collectively called The Years, um, is in my mind mostly about the winter uh, and also, of course, some of the summer. But why don't I just read a couple of paragraphs or a page, perhaps, uh, of the opening of that second beat, which is uh, about what happens when they decide to get and stay together. Uh, the last line of uh, the first half of the book is when she says to him, please stay. He stayed. It wasn't difficult. One closet, two bureaus sufficed. There were a few suits he would fail to wear, three boxes of books and two of shoes, a small crate of CDs. The house in Truro, uh, a small village on the outer edge of Cape Cod, Lawrence said, had art on every single wall and books and music on the shelves, and he had no desire to compromise her space. It's not, said Hermia, a compromise. Why would you call it that? I'm at the house, he told her, not what's happening with us. Just bring whatever you want to, please. He told her he had always traveled light. She urged him to bring furniture or anything he needed, but he repeated, with a gallantry she was beginning to think genuine, that everything he needed was here on the Cape, in her house. He did return to Ann Arbor to pack up his apartment and empty out his office, but it was oddly like the time so long ago when he departed college as a student, not a professor. There was little to keep him, said Lawrence, and little he wanted to take. The life he'd led without her was a life he left behind. Well, end of beginning of story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that is from winter. That's right. Winter. It takes them on past their decision to cohabit in their 60s into their marriage and into what Shakespeare called the necessary end. Then why summer? Because I know spring and fall were the first half of the book. And and so how can you give, or do you not want to say how you, uh, is there a leap or is there... It, it it actually oh. <laughs> it, it, it's not actually the case. It, you you're too young to remember. There was a uh, a creature, a character in the Howdy Doody show called Princess 
summer, fall, winter, spring or something like that. <laughs> and because I did publish a novel called Spring and Fall, I thought coyly for a while that its sequel would be uh, Winter, Summer. Um, but in fact, the whole book is called The Years and it's not broken into those things. There is a summer to their, their joy uh, and there is another generation. That's yeah. that's what I yeah. was wondering because right. it seems to be that that would be the feel right. of it. Absolutely so. Uh-huh. I I won't come back here to bother you in January um, when the book does come out, but it is one with which I'm pleased. Um, so it, well, you're yeah. welcome anytime, Nick. And and you you also had um, because I don't think we did get to talk about spring and fall mm-hmm. ever, but we did talk about. Sherbrooke's right. and the the three um, novels right. that then you are re reimagined well slightly into a larger piece. Uh, yes, the Sherbrooke's trilogy, uh, and actually it's it's somehow connected to this. It's the two times I've done it. Um, the Sherbrooke's trilogy were books I published when I was still sort of cutting my eye teeth, and in in my mind, they represented the end of my apprenticeship as as a novelist. Um, I wrote them in 19, or they were published in 1977, 78, and, and 80. Um, there were three separate volumes. And when someone uh, flatteringly asked me to reissue them uh, a few years ago, um, I said yes, under the condition that I could rewrite them. And we talked about that. I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the good news is that I think I'm a better writer now than I was then, and the bad news is the same. So, so I ended up doing a lot of uh, a lot of rewriting and reconsidering um, and contracting, uh, and they got republished as a single volume uh, called Sherbrooke's. It was a very interesting exercise for me, um, uh, indeed. Uh, an almost entirely rewarding one. But one of the things I learned, for instance, is that if you love a character and you think you might want to return to him or her, you don't kill them off. (laughs) And since I'd killed off my character's seriatim in the Sherbrooke's trilogy, that was a bit of a a narrative arc to, uh, to reconstruct. In this case, even when I was writing Spring and Fall, I knew it was a story that wasn't entirely over. And so I kept them alive and had her say, please stay. And when you say you knew it wasn't a story that's over, can you talk about that feeling as a writer? Because it seems like that would go to the the practice as well as the craft, the, the, the being, the, the, the knowing and the, the, the not knowing. <laughs> You're right. It, it's a it's a complicated question because, uh, I mean, in terms of the actual book itself, you have to know it's over. There has to be a uh, a solution, a resolution to whatever problem or problems were posed. A wholeness. Um, the end of the what Henry James called the affair, um, even though it it doesn't necessarily mean that you know they all go out with guns blazing or they all live happily ever after there has to be a, at least a momentary completion and cessation uh, at, at book's end um, I I don't really know how to talk about it except in somewhat abstract terms 
the feeling of the shape of the whole, which is what you struggle for as a novelist. And in the first volume of Sherbrooke's, for instance, uh, which was a book by literally that name, um, I, uh, I wrote the last scene first and spent the next couple of years and the next couple of hundred pages sort of working up to it. And actually, by the time I got there, I realized I'd gotten that scene wrong and needed to alter it altogether. Um, so one learns about closure. Um, and I do feel that after the last line of the years, there will be nothing left to say, at least about this pair. But not about other pairs and other configurations, because as you've mentioned earlier, Nick, what is ahead? Perhaps six books per year. We're guessing right now. We can I, lay the odds. I'm, a, I'm of course, <laughs> joking about that. But, but it is true that um, it's the kind of disease that a writer calls health to think that his best work lies ahead of him and his the books behind are not so consequential. I imagine it will come to pass. I, after all, wrote a whole book about this, The Art of Old Age, when I will actually know the way I know when I look at myself in the mirror that I'm no longer the 20-year-old I was. I will actually know that I'm no longer I was. I will actually know that I'm no longer I was. I will actually know that I'm no I was. I will actually know that I'm no I was. I will actually know that I'm no I was. I will actually know that I'm no I was. I will actually know that I'm no of it here some of it on the table with us and thanks so much for talking with me today and thanks so much yeah. for this invitation it's always a pleasure well today you've been listening to a conversation with Nicholas Delbanco on Living Writers thanks again to Stephanie I'm T. Hetzel until next time Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Uh, I'm Eli Sherman. I'm joined by Morris Fabry today. Um, we're going to be talking uh, Devin Funchess and uh, Michigan basketball uh, in just a moment right after this.
And welcome back. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Eli Sherman, again joined by Morris Fabry. So we got big news in the basketball world here at Michigan. Michigan, after losing uh, last Saturday to NJIT, the Highlanders from Newark, New Jersey, uh, in what was by all accounts one of the most shocking games in recent college basketball history, the Wolverines tried to bounce back last night against the Eagles of Eastern Michigan University, but the Eagles came into Chrysler Center, and for the second straight game, the Wolverines fell to a mid-major opponent. They lost last night 45-42, the last time Michigan lost a game in which they held their opponent to 45 points was back in the 1930s, so that just goes to show that Michigan played a pretty good game defensively. Morris, what did you see out of the Wolverines last night? Well, I saw a few things. First off, I saw that John Beeline did not have this team prepared for Eastern Michigan's 2-3 zone. You know, they were coming off of a victory over Syracuse, seems like ages ago after the two losses to NJIT and Eastern Michigan, but a victory in which they were at least passable on offense against a Syracuse team that was giving them chance after chance with turnover after turnover. But last night against Eastern Eastern Michigan, who is by all accounts a less impressive team than Syracuse. They could not get anything going. The passing was not crisp. Players were hesitant to get to their positions. It seemed like most of the guys out there had no idea where they were supposed to be against the zone, and even when they were in the right positions, they were dropping passes all over the place, uh, not finding the open man in good time. And part of that is 